Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called The Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. So, it's an old mucker today, isn't it? It is. And apparently, y- you might be in trouble. I am in trouble. I am going to be in trouble. And But first, before uh, before <laughs> the whatever starts flying, it wasn't my fault. So what exactly happened? Uh, when they did the remake of the power, when the power station got back together uh, in 1996, uh, Bernard Edwards, unfortunately, sadly, died while they were making it. And so uh, they had these dates booked. So I got asked to, and then John Taylor was going to do them, and then John didn't do it. And so I was kind of the third <laughs> wheel. Uh, I got asked to play bass. And I said, yeah, I can do this Japanese tour, but I have to come from New York. And I did, and I, I and the the problem was United Airlines. My plane was, I was going to get in at midday on the day of the show. My plane was two hours late leaving New York and then had a mechanical problem in San Francisco and was stuck there for about eight hours. And uh, I didn't make the show. Of course, we're talking about Andy Taylor who's coming on and obviously played in Duran and the power station. But, but hang on, um, who played that show that night? Here's the thing, Luke Morley, who was the second guitarist from Thunder, who they had to go and find a left-handed bass for. Oh, no. And have yeah. you spoken to Andy since? I th- well, we did the whole tour. I mean, I did the whole rest of the tour. It was you know, it was fine after that. But, oh. but okay. I wonder if we should even be giving this away now. I wonder if maybe we should. Oh, put no, I, I just know. wanted. I wanted your evidence within a closed <laughs> environment. Uh, safe space. <laughs> Before we introduce the story to Andy, yes. um, I I I wrote a few things down here, guy, and I'm. It's a kind of a quiz. Which other which listeners can sort of keep up with and shout at their devices about? Because Andy is our third Durani. member of a band. Yeah, that we've had, but we've never had that before. Now we've had two people from one band, so I wondered if you could begin the list. Ah, well, hang on. Do we want our listeners to guess this, or or are you quizzing me? <laughs> well, they don't have to guess it because they can just look it up, but they could shout at the device. But I'm sort of quizzing you. I'm chucking. A f- I'm wondering if you could recall these. Uh, yes, Tears for Fears. Yes, 
Tears for fears. <laughs> Both tears and fears. <laughs> we haven't had okay. four on yet. At uh, one point, no. Uh, Deep, Deep Purple. Deep Purple, of course. Glenn and, and, and the Cove. The Cove. Yeah. Uh, there's, another, there's another Cove connection. Whitesnake. Yeah, I'm trying to think who we've heard from from Whitesnake, apart from me. Bernie, Bernie Marsden. Oh, my God, of course, Bernie Marsden, yes. How easy we forget. How, what do you mean how easy we forget? We've done, like, over 160 of these. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're old. It's like, it's like being in a okay. spelling bee or something. Hey, come on, come on, come on. There's got to be another one. Um, Spandau Ballet, because we've had yeah, you and Martin. That's true, that's true. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. Pink Floyd, uh, because we've had Nick Mason twice. <laughs> <laughs> at different ages <laughs> uh, Sparks of course because we have both of them on. oh that's true yeah but I wasn't looking for that wasn't looking for that Genesis oh Look. yeah of course Mike and Steve Mike Rutherford and Steve Hackett and there's there's another one on my list final one and it's Humble Pie of course because we've had Jerry Shirley and Peter Frampton there you go that's a, I think that's it but there might be more so maybe our our listeners can can let us know if there are other dots, lines that can be drawn in this kind of peak frame family tree of rock on tours. Yeah. Um, so you actually made a list. I had nothing better to do. <laughs> you, you've outfrindled yourself, Gary. I, 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 I wrote it on my special ledger where I keep my bus tickets. <laughs> This isn't very rock and roll, is it? This isn't very Duran Duran. No, but it's very... And, no, it's not. But I was just thinking, this is very sort of Sunday afternoon leisurely radio, isn't it? <laughs> uh oh let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, it's, it's to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello. Hey. <laughs> oh, mate. Good to see you. Andy. Hello. Hello. I am just testing my Pro Tools audio. One, two, one, two. <laughs> We're like a pro. We're like a pro. I got, I got instructions. <laughs> Where are you? I'm in um the uh, hotel. Just, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, the, the what, what's it? You know that oh, I can't even remember the name of it. The one near the BBC. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so you're in London. You're in yeah, London. yeah. I'm um I'm starting my uh nuclear therapy on Thursday. So I've been um having tests and scans and all kinds of, you know, far out science stuff. Are you doing um, are you doing gene therapy or something? What is it? No no, it's I have I have got a um a wonky gene as well which was a, another surprise but what it is is um it's a nuclear medicine so the stage i'm at which was stage four 
like shit, basically. Um, this therapy came into the UK only recently. It's very, very new. And essentially, it's a nuclear medicine um, that it, it's, it's put into your body and it can it detects the cancer on the outside of the cells and it only hits cancer cells in your bones, which is mainly where it is with me, and zaps them. But if there's a healthy cell next to it, it doesn't touch it. Wow. Oh, fantastic. So it's not curative, but it can knock it out and then it's got to start again. And right. um, from what was kind of, you know, oh, well, I'll not even I'll not even say the term they used to have on, on the thing, but I'm I'm now going to be like back. I can get back to full fitness. I'll be I'll be fine for five years. And um, oh man, because I, I saw you at the uh, at the Wham documentary screening, and you were you, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was so nice to hear you say to me, you know, I'm off I'm off that bad list. Yeah, it's it's I I, I bumped into your brother as well, and you know. I think, and uh, you know, when you've got that, when you've had that common experience of mm. it could definitely go the wrong way. I'm always happy when I see people that made it, and you know, and I, I, when you appreciate what everybody goes through when this sort of thing happens, family, and yeah, you know, it's a it's a killer. Anyway, I um, I know the band have been great, you know, so we've you know we've kind of uh, we've got a lot of a lot of stuff that we've been working on and uh, under the radar and um yeah um uh, the solo album oh, i made i just i, I just was, wanted to... i thought it was my last album and so that's kind of where it changed i just wanted to to because that the fact that you couldn't make and congratulations for being a rock and roll hall of famer i mean oh you know i've got here i've got me a little medal oh look it's, uh, <laughs> it's that's i mean that in itself's mental uh, you know, I uh, yeah. It, 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 that I think that's when we found out about that, um, and everyone's going, "Oh, it's a shoe in. You'll get there. You'll be." And I'm like, "No, no, no. That's like saying your single's going to go in at number one. It goes in at number three. <laughs> you know." <laughs> and well, I I vote in it, Andy. So uh, you know, you're welcome, mate. <laughs> no, every we get we had a lot of <laughs> yeah. votes. So it was uh, that was the other thing. You know, we had like so many public votes and then you realize how fervent the fan base still is and um and i you know uh, obviously i uh i've spent some good years in duran but i qualified because i think i spent 12 i didn't know if uh, but then oh what if there's like if there's a minimum it? if there's a, like a cutoff yeah i think i think <laughs> i think that? it's 12 years Wow. Right. So, I, I mean, there is, a, and then you have to be a contract. It's all sorts of stuff. Anyway, the great thing about Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is we've got some allies there now. One was our ex-agent, and the other one was uh, one of the chaps that used to run MTV in the eighties. Obviously, you not being able to get there was a real tragedy for you. And the letter that you sent and Simon read out was that was sort of powerful for everybody. Well, you know, he wanted offered to read the letter out. Well, I, initially, because it was only about three or four days before that I had to kind of, you know, have a word with myself. Um, and, uh, you know, who wants to be Mick Mars? God bless them. But, you know, if you're not on 11 at one of those events, and I was on about five, couldn't really stand up and play guitar. Did, you know, I did everything I could, but then I spoke to Merck, had been, has been helped 
amazing, uh, uh, brilliant with everything. Matt Mercuriadis. I said, I hadn't told the guys. He said, just write a letter, you know, you you write well, write a letter. So, and really that letter just took me about 15 minutes to write. I just thought, okay, heart, heart the paper and you can't, you know, you can't miss anything out. And, and, and acknowledging what they've done, which has kept the thing going, you know, I'm the cat that got the cream. Simon read it and he just said, you know, they, I, I think actually they moved the show and put them at the front so he could do that. And um, I was just, it's quite weird. I was sitting at home, Tracy and my daughter who were coming with me, they were in London waiting for me to get to London. I was sitting at home. I was just with my grandson, my daughter, and this new cat who ended up becoming my little comfort animal. Mm. And, um, and it was quite surreal. And then Merck kept sending me clippings from the show on his phone. And I'm like, thanks, mate. Right. <laughs> I think I'm just I'm just going to watch Joe Rogan or something. But it's it was sort of surreal. But then, you know how intense those things can be. And there was the, there was the you know, the, the nominees dinner, something at the British Embassy, you know, the whole drinks, parties, red carpets, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And... You know, I just put your, uh, put your health uh, I couldn't I couldn't genuinely be trusted <laughs> yeah. by myself to to get there. And they did everything, you know. Um, Merck and, and Niall and, and the guys, they they, they were just gonna send a jet to Ibiza, whip me in, rehearse and straight back out. And then I looked at the price and I said, We can make about ten albums for that. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy, but right, everyone right, right. was incredibly supportive and fans god they were you know because i'm not in the thick of it not being in the band so i'm not engaged and i've been you know trying to keep myself alive and the the, the response from the fans and and the, the kind of it's love and and just stuff that you it's difficult to put into words but then when i got after that i got um a lot of very, very amazing people got in touch with me from all over the world. And um, there's a chap here <clears throat> called Sir Chris Evans um, who took a look at everything for me and said, no, he said, there's a lot more we can do for me. He did my genomics and he he's like, a, he's a genius. He's a, uh, a biochemist, kind of like, you know, Elon Musk of cancer. Wow. He just knows everything, and he and he took a look at it, um, really, really deeply, and looked at the genomics and said there's several, there's several ways we can help you, and the, the, the treatment I'm I'm getting is probably the best. That's amazing. So it, because I didn't go, I got my life back. Wow! How weird. That is amazing, isn't it? I mean, every cloud. Wow, what a story. Well, yeah, like. Yeah. It it, it, it it it's difficult you know because it was well you know what happened. i've never had chemotherapy you know what happens with chemo if you're a guitar player your fingers can go so i've always i've had i've always been able to use quite sophisticated drugs and stuff but you get to a point where it's either this treatment or there's not really anything else that'll flush it out and um first thing whenever i go and see an oncologist or a urologist it's like Right, we got to protect your fingers. I'm like, great, that's a good place to start, because <laughs> um, it does. It can actually destroy them. And out, um, out of this, is is it 
am I allowed to say that you and Simon have kind of bonded and, and you're working on some future material? Oh, yeah, well, uh, so Simon and Yasmin came over to Ibiza and brought my award about 10 days after he got back. And and Yaz and Tracy had known each other for ages and they, they, they've always got on great. So they just came over with a thing, got a great big magnum of fucking fantastic vintage on Perignon. And um, we just, you know, it's, we, we, we've never crossed swords, me and Simon, ever. Uh, and always remained in touch. And, and I, I, you know, I was just shooting the shit with him and then, and then he he was in my um in my studio room in the house and we're just sitting there listening to music and stuff and he said i played your single on serious i really like it and i'm like oh wow that's cool and he's like you want to fire up some of it and so i, I, I fired up the studio and it's, i've got a set up it's really nice room to work in and he's like i love it in here can i come over and work <laughs> and i'm like anytime mate you know and so about five, six days later, he called me and said, you know, we're going to do this album. It's kind of Halloween-based, but looking back on material, that, that that was quite influential on everybody and reworking some Duran tracks that are kind of dark, like Notebook. Anyway, he came over again with Josh, engineer, and um, I whacked down about nine tracks in a couple of days. So Fantastic. And and the reworked versions of the Duran stuff sound really really good. I, I I was absolutely, you know, blown away with the way they'd augmented the chords. And then after two days, I'd got through eight tracks, and I'm like, <laughs> wow, riding a bike. I saw him. Know? I saw him on Saturday night actually, and he mentioned the album to me, and he's he was very excited about everything. He, you know, he's always excited, right? But he's yeah. I'm so glad that's <laughs> happening for you because you deserve it right now. You know. John was on FaceTime when we were jamming and stuff in LA and like, and I'm like, see, he's like, no, leave the FaceTime on. And, you know, it was like, we've done it all virtually and hung out a bit and all that. And then when we finished on the, uh, was it the Thursday night, me and Simon, he said, let's go out to dinner. I said, let's go down the local. He says, what they do? I said, sausage, egg and chips. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we went and had sausage, egg and chips and a couple of pints and, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, there's there's a couple of new tracks. There's one new track I played on, fantastic, really really cool track. But there's something about a connection. And then what happened to us with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the, the, there's a couple of other things that are, 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 are in, well, more than in the pipeline. And um, that old bond just is is very easy to kind of, you know, stick it back together. Um, Great and. I think, you know, this sort of third wave of success that the band's having, you know, I'm really, I'm really proud to be a part of it. It's quite nice being a part-time member. Like being a grandparent rather than a parent. I, I am both of those as well. Yeah. Yeah. But Andy, so look, talk about your album, yeah. right? Which you did. Now, mate, where's this voice been all those it's years? such a great vocal. I mean, where's it been? I've I've, I've played with you. No. I've written with you. I've done, where's where was that voice? That well, it's amazing. Well, thank you. Um, I think <laughs> it's the first time when Hartwig at BMG. He actually uh, one day the phone goes and uh, FaceTime and Hartwig comes up 
he said, you know, I'd love to sign you to make an album. I'm like, what what sort of album? He said, well, maybe Power Station, do a solo album. I don't care. I love your work, you know. And I mean, this was about 2016. And I, I'm like, great, just one thing. Will you just leave? give me the money and leave me alone? And he's like, absolutely, sure. And he did. And the company just let me find my voice. And so for the first time, I didn't just think about writing songs. I really thought about, you know, because I I knew I had some bad stuff going on. And I, I thought, well, actually learning from Robert that you can go anywhere on a record. Robert Palmer. If, if you stretch it out, yeah. you find different parts of your voice. And then working the the people that I work with um on the writing which just two really good friends of mine who were both great writers and get it who were they and, uh, uh, Ricky Warwick um and uh, a guy called Matthias Lundblom so Rick, um, Ricky was in uh he's in Thin Lizzy isn't he or Thin Lizzy Black Star Riders the I, I produced his uh the almighty right you know um Right, right. Soul Destruction, and that's where I met Ricky, but we've never written together. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just one of those that, well, if I'm doing everything, producing, playing, singing, writing, you got to have someone who's solid to, you know, yeah. work with, um, both lyrically and melodically, so you can really Because the melodies on the and album they, are so strong. They help you. The, mel uh, the melodies on the album are really, really strong. I mean, there's, really there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I should say, it's called Man's a Wolf. To man, which you might have to explain in a minute, but I just think the that the, there's a kind of early seventies. There's a lot of glam feel about it here yeah. and there. It's definitely yeah. Bowie. Bowie. Wayne is really mm. in your blood, isn't he, Andy? Yeah, it, it's it's well, you know, when I started writing it, Bowie and Prince died, and I I, I, remember, I remember when Bowie died, and and me and Trace were in farmhouse in Ibiza, just on our own, and she's a massive Bowie fan. Like me, you know, I think that's the one thing Duran would always agree on is David Bowie. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, and, you know, we just were like, and we got, we just put Bowie on all night and, and, and celebrated it and that. And, you know, and I said, and I said to Tracy, I said, you know, the thing is, if you're still around to do it and I'm still around to do it, because I'd just kind of been offered the record deal, I think, as well. It's like, that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you've got to remember it, you're still around to do it. And and some of the, the greatest influences in your life, you know, aren't. And it's quite, you know, when Bowie died, for me, it was like, and he was so young. And it's ingrained in me from yeah, yeah. Hunky Dory. You know, I mean, our generation were the Bowie kids, the ones that discovered his records and kind of took them apart. That's why we did it. Yeah. I don't think anybody. I don't think we could have formed around around without without the Bowie influence and and certainly Paul Thompson's influence on Roger and stuff. Mm. And it all comes back to that. And I don't think anyone's really done it better than I can think of from from that crop in the seventies, which was kind of you know that was our education, and it was a fucking fine education. <laughs> so Bowie runs deep and. Yeah. Not having to fit in anything, you know, there was no get this on radio too, or you got to do a viral TikTok or whatever the fuck. I just wanted to 
get back to making a record that actually felt meant something to me as opposed to just writing something and or producing something i think the last record i did was a, before that was the ting ting's third album which actually was a lot of fun because they are they were great the they're cut from the same cloth you know like eccentric british pop and jules is a bit of a genius mm-hmm. and katie's a really cool singer and they've just done another album and um you know we kind of we kind of swap each other's progress and they've just done an album it it's it's got some of her classic vocal style that she's used but it's very um it's very west coast it's very harmony based it's beautiful record and they they're like kind of like me we just do it it's this that's what life is you just do it even if you don't release it you know you still do it cuz you've been playing with reef for quite a while cuz when i yeah. i i heard a few of those tracks from this album a while ago and i thought it was the guy from reef who 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 was helping you out with the vocals as well on some of them so gary initially um before the pandemic and the, and, and and you know the cancer take gary had sung about half the vocals anyway after i started looking at the album again i was sitting i was sitting in the studio in ibiza and tracy Rayleigh comes in and she she's she's like why aren't you singing all this album and i'm like that's a good question i said well i probably had you know maybe been a little bit uh cautious and and gary's such a wonderful singer and i'd started working with reef so it was a it was an easy thing anyway she's like you should sing it they're your songs you know and and I'm not working with Gary now, and, and a lot of things have changed. So I think there's three or four tracks that I that I redid the vocals on that Gary did. All but right. Man's a Wolf to Man, the Influential Blondes, I, I'd all all of those I'd done the vocal for. Great title that, by the way, Influential really, Blondes. Yeah, it's um it's about the rise of fascism in the modern world. Mm. I'm not. It's that, but you know it's and it's kind of written from. The distorted view of a film fashionista like Harvey Weinstein. There's a line in it: mm-hmm. "Sign your name. Silence is blue. Soon as you sign those contracts, your NDA shuts you up, and mm-hmm. then people control you." And all that Weinstein, Trump kind of thing all happened at the same time. It's all the same kind of, you know. Well, so when you were hundred days in, or something, hundred days into Trump, when yeah, um, that's yeah. that's um track called Lover at Liberation, which is which came out as a single originally. Gary sings that. I mean, it's like you need to have the ACDC brains to do it. Uh, and he 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 blew it away. Um, and Ricky and I wrote it on the 100th day of Trump's presidency. And there's a line in it that says, 100 days of madness, who's keeping score? And, and you know, I'd, when we were young, it, it was turbulent, but we were all dressing up and partying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and it was it it was the it was our answer to the crap was to clubland was the escapism for me from northern northeastern nowhere, you know that 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 kind of vibe. I think what I discovered about finding your voice, and when I moved on, was was the more you kind of open up about lyrics and are actually saying something that is relevant in the moment. It's a lot easier to express it. And the other thing is I did, a, I, I, I quit fucking myself up, but right. you know, <laughs> in my forties, went and had a, I went and had a good old check. I said, take a look at my Larnix and the, the ENT guy did. 
and um, he said it's in 100% good condition. Andy, this is this was so this album had had two things going on, and you know it, you had the first maybe your cancer coming into your life, and lockdown. I mean, you know, and it's not good to have lock, cancer and lockdown because that must have been a trial in itself. And you're in Ibiza, right? Well, we yeah we got actually when we got stuck in Ibiza when the first lockdown came, which wasn't so bad to be quite honest, but it meant. You know, I, I wasn't on any um, chemo treatment or anything like that. I was I was on drugs, legal <laughs> drugs. And I, so I could coordinate. I could get blood tests done in Spain and then I could. Ha- so I, I didn't it wasn't too complicated, but the hospital was shut down and you weren't having face to face visits. And I know a lot of people, you know, got their treatment canceled and they didn't make it. So. We had the Reef album in the bag. We had my album in the bag. And then I remember we were in the studio in London in, in Strong Room mixing. And um, and then it started coming on TV about what was happening in China. And like, the guys are like, I think that'll affect us. I'm like, well, it's already in Italy. And, you know, it looks pretty bad. And within a week, I'm sitting holding two albums, <laughs> a rotten cancer diagnosis. But I took an a, equipment with, uh, with me to Ibiza to kind of finish off the Reef album. And uh, and that kept me busy sort of through it. But, and In fact, actually, just having a place to write and, you know, a studio room just to play in and do music sort of it's probably been the most powerful tool in terms of you know the, the psychology of it all but you've been in Ibiza for a long time hadn't you Andy off and on oh, yeah had a place there off yeah. and on well when we got Duran back together London wasn't really an option for us and Ibiza used to be quieter then nothing happened till July there was no mm. Leonardo DiCaprio's or any of that stuff it was it was all those clubbers I mean we know who they are this is and that that you know they all came out of the 80s and 90s and um there was that period where before they now they shut the clubs at 6 a.m but you know that late 90s early noughties where it was um it was great fun and there wasn't too much there was no big kind of ashwires and hard rocks and that branded stuff it, it was all fun was local but was it hard for you to to sort of stay clean and healthy? living there was the temptations always on your doorstep like anywhere you know i'm uh, i don't i mean i think london's a lot more dangerous on on many many levels but the temp we when we were in our early 40s we had a great time i mean you know i go down with andy and mike and all that crew man your mission and it, it yeah it was a hoot but but actually by that point I wasn't really, you know, when you get into your 40s, it's it's not something that really you can really wear well. And I, I eventually kind of slowed down on clubs, really, about two, 2006, 2007. I just, it, it, I couldn't keep up with it. And I keep going out and seeing my kids. So that's like, okay, Dad. <laughs> right, right, right. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Before we came on, Guy was telling me a story about how he missed... He... I had been warned <laughs> by Julian. I had been warned by Julian and his that PR. I was going to get a roast. <laughs> it's... And, and, and Julian's and his PR. So, have you got a left-hand base? Oh. I fucking should have because I bought one. It looks like <laughs> it's some, it's somewhere in the south. They take probably. it out of your wages, then, guy. But they bought the left hand base. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. When I got home from the tour, my wage there was fifteen hundred dollars deducted for rental of a left hand base. And I spoke to Harper, Robert's manager. Yeah. I went, "Well, where is it? Fifteen hundred bucks? I've bought it, mate." It, he's, yeah, well, he's not the right person to speak to, is he? <laughs> About much. No. <laughs> and, and, well, now I mean that was so. There we are, and um, I don't even think Harper was there. No, he wasn't. I don't. No, think, no. It, it um, was, I mean, that, and, and, and in fact, I think at the time, him and Robert were having a bit of a set too. Yeah. Um, oh no, it was the other guy. It was the partner. It was the partner. Yeah. And yeah. actually, I think, I think it was Harper's son that was there, uh, looking after Robert. I can't remember who was with us. Young blood. I only remember young blood. Donnie Wynn used to call him young blood. Yeah, young, they used to call him young blood, and he used to have a little thing right. write everything down because he could never remember anything. Who was Harper? David. Harper. Sorry, David Harper. He was Robert Palmer's manager. Yeah. And um, but he. Uh, so I mean, I get a call. It's like, oh, there's a delay on on guys' flight, and I'm like, <laughs> first thing I said was, I warned you about this. Oh fuck no! <laughs> this is not enough. <laughs> You know, no, it was a bit more than that. It was a bit. I was meant to be getting at midday. I uh, think. Anyway, everyone's yeah. looking. Like I said all sheepish and stuff, and I'm like, and I know, I know, I know that the uh, the plane was delayed and stuff. And I said, okay, well, we're going to lose most of tour profit if we lose one show. <laughs> so Sunday afternoon, and Luke, I'm like. Luke Morley, this is from Thunder, who was the yeah. second guitarist. Now, Luke was playing second guitar, right? There was, and it was just me, Luke, Tony, and oh, the bass player dude. He was a. Um, me? Before John you. John Taylor, wasn't it? No. No, no, it was Manny. Uh, oh, he, Manny, yeah. Yeah, right. He, because he couldn't come. So we were only going to be a two, you know, two guitars, bass, and drums, and there was no brass or anything. So when we stripped it down, and Luke, for some reason, you know, it just he is so competent as a musician. We sat down, and he's like, "Yeah, I got them all." And uh, I think we had a few before we went on, and and it was fine. 
Yeah, there you go. The, the, the thing is, because me and Luke were doing all the harmonies with Robert and stuff, then we're, we did some like it hot as a three-piece. <laughs> no keyboards. But that's right, know, we had no keys. Mm. But and, um, you know, we miraculously found a left-hand bass. I think it was in Osaka. And um, that's for 1500 bucks yeah and i also remember straight after the gig i said to luke you know we need a drink and like and they're like you'll never find a bar open in osaka at midnight but we did well our funny thing is when i arrived andy i i went i went to get my key and there was a there was a note from mary mary ambrose robert's partner yeah. right she just went go to bed don't go to the bar they will kill you. <laughs> Which you obviously, you did go to bed. You took her advice. It was a fun tour, though. Do you know, actually, shall I say there's a very sweet little sidebar Robert memory. Yeah. yeah. Which is, um, one day, one of the days we had in Tokyo, Robert says, oh, guy, do you want to go shopping? I'm like, yeah, shopping with Robert Palmer in Tokyo. Yeah. And of course, you're thinking, you know, it's going to be one of those fabulous malls or, it's, you know, is Yoji Yamamoto's going to open the shop up? But no, and this was so Robert, Yorkshire Robert. He had a folder, and in it he had a card on which he'd stuck all these bits of paper which he'd cut out of magazines, which were the names and addresses of specialist shops. Like there was a model gun shop, there was a shop that did barometers or something. <laughs> all this weird stuff. And some of it was like miles out of Tokyo. And it was just the weirdest thing to do in Tokyo. It was, and it was just so charming. <laughs> He, he, yeah, that was the last time I, I saw Robert. Well, not not oh, then, Robert. but but in um, when Duran played there, I think in two thousand and three. Because I always hung out with him a bit, and you know, yeah. we, we. Well, you wrote about it very sweetly in your book about the last time you saw him. Actually, yeah, that was. I remember that. And, yeah, and that um, we were we were playing at the Budokan, and I get this message from him. He's like, "Yeah, I'm playing in a club up the road midnight. You, you want to come?" And I'm like, well, we, you know, you finish like eight o'clock at the Budokan. So I'm like, get the gear up the road. So tuck some stuff up. And then there he was, this packed club. He's like, I've got a Japanese band, you know. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did a few songs. I came on. But what I noticed was the bottle of whiskey hadn't been opened. And I said to him, we're going to have a little shifty before we go on. He says, no, I can't anymore. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, and I noticed he, he kind of calmed down. And, but then I think I didn't leave him till 10 a.m. the next morning. Well, yeah, no, well, no, before the show, that was always his thing. Because I remember when I first met him, which was back in 83 on a tour, and because the other thing, because Robert was a very heavy smoker. Ooh, Dunhill. Right, Dunhills. But he would stop when he went on tour. But what he would do is he would always light everyone else's <laughs> cigarettes for them. <laughs> Do you remember, if everyone was having to go, oh, let me light that for you. Oh, can I light that for you? So he was probably smoking about 20, but it, and it was just really weird and slightly annoying. <laughs> I always, you know, if you ever needed a tab, just ask Robert. He always, like Clark Gable and Lauren yeah, McCall handing you the cigarette. Yes. But, he, you know, I, I, so I saw him like, you know, not before a show, can't do it now, slowed down a bit, all that. And then... Um, yeah, we had a we had a fun weekend because we we were doing a couple of nights at the Budokan. We had a bit of a late night. Fortunately, someone got me home, and then you know we got like a six o'clock show. And then he came down the show, and we went down um, uh, the, the hotel we were in. I think it was the, the High at Rapongi then, which was like super oh, yeah. super cool. 
And uh, there was about 30 of us. He hadn't seen John for years. And we just had this, it, it was actually our last supper. And it's quite wow. ironic that we sort of spent this rock and roll weekend together. He came to see us. I got up and played with him. We did the old long dinner, you know, get get stuck into the cellar. And him and John, were, you know, hadn't really spoken in that. And then a few weeks later, I came off tour and I was sitting in... Uh, sitting by the pool in Ibiza, uh, get the, I get this call, it's, he's sitting down, I'm like, I'm fucking lying down, what's going on, Robert? I'm like, he's 52. Wow, yeah. yeah. And and that really, again, you know, because you're like, that's sort of my lifestyle. I sort of do the same thing. Maybe not in the same quantity, but, you know, you. and when you're with Robert, you really get carried up in it. And... um Palmered. We used to call it Palmered. How do you? I got Palmered. Yeah. Oh, I met him. I think it was in Boy. Was it in Boy It was. It was a squat or a kind of hippie kind of hanging out house in Notting Hill. I think it was either Steve Strangers or Boy George. Yeah, I think that was. Steve. Well, he was. He was mates was with Steve, Steve Strange. Yeah. I know that. So it must. It yeah. probably was Steve's. And I remember me and John. I think we were recording Rio, and you know John lived at the Embassy Club. <laughs> and um, we went back to Steve's, and Robert was lying on the bed off his nut on acid doing the dying fly. And <laughs> 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 laughing his head off. Anyway, uh, it, it, that was another artist. We all had this kind of interest in, and you know, because of his just his, uh, his vocal and his style, I think, was, you know, there's very few people that. That could carry that off so effortlessly, and and his range and his and some of the risks he took with production. And this is, I think, where you get to give yourself a bit of a pat on the back because the power station is kind of the thing that made everything possible for him. You know, that turned it around and got yeah. Because you know, addicted to love wasn't who he was, but it's that's. But he needed that to get him out, and and it was a power station that got him there. It you know, got him got him Bernard. You know. Well, the funny thing is, he had addicted to love when we were recording. He had the song. Right. Just kept it in his back pocket, which, you know, I admire, to be quite honest. But that, yeah, the the whole, the drum sound thing and Tony and, you know, yeah. I, yeah, I, when and I, also and a big big thank you from me for my first proper fucking well, that's payday where we ever. Met. I, that's, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I had a song on it. I mean, amazing. And but <laughs> yeah, yeah, go to zero. It's great. Yeah, really cool song. Where you know Tony had that Bonham in him, and as I got to know yeah. Tony when he was on the Bowie tour, he's like, you really want to do something else, and I'm like, I just love to play with him. Anyway, it kind of started, and I. When he told me about his Bonham thing and I watched him play and like Bernard and Nile were like, yeah, we we try to be a rock band, but no one wanted a black rock band. Obviously inspired by the Let's Dance record and and, and some of the drum sounds on that. But we did it at Maison Rouge, um, some mm -hmm. big, big drums. And that just said, like, once Tony had done that and then Bernard had sat in and, then, and, and, and got John into the groove and... You know, playing with them was kind of something that you had to. Work uh, Jason Casaro deserves a shout as well. Jason, Jason would just go, and if it sounded good, he didn't care what was flashing, mm -hmm. and he yeah. just he, he was very Machiavellian, but also, um, you know, those musical engineers—they're the ones that have got that 
you know that musicality in them and they balance they can balance stuff and he was a you know mm-hmm. we, we relied a lot on jason but bernard was you know i always regarded bernard as as, as something you know how can you get near to that can you can you get mm-hmm. in a place where yeah and like, i remember sitting one day and i'm saying no, do it like this bernard play that and i'm thinking <laughs> yeah how can you tell bernard edwards <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he was he was Absolute I mean, you mentioned master. Bowie earlier about how we were all Bowie, but the yeah. other people we also were was were, were, were that was that, you know, it was chic, you know that. With the funk, the funk shit, yeah. yeah. And 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 I mean, I was a big Northern Soul fan um, up in Newcastle, uh, and so, but <coughs> but chic was another element, uh, the production groove, yeah, the playing, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the songs that all of the Duran, particularly John. First time I met John, me and John and Rog jammed. And John just had this kind of Bernard Edwards that, mm-hmm. you know, I can crang a bit like Angus and he could, he could groove a bit like Bernard and we were like on the same page. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that chuck and that. And, it, you know, we discovered each other by jamming one day in, in an audition. But, John- but you were, you, but back then it must be said, you were kind of really writing a book on with like especially on those a lot of those early hits man with, with with that kind of it wasn't disco it wasn't rock it was as you'd if you'd found no, i tell you what else andy had which was almost he, his guitar um, parts were almost like brass parts at times you know they yeah. were staccato sure, yeah. and uh yeah i mean but the grit that you were putting in the the smoothness of the sheet you know rhythm section made it yeah. unique and well that I, you know, I remember when I met the guys, they were, because they were fans of punk and guitar bands. And and so that element of sound, I mean, that was the thing that was very, you know, cool about Nick. He had, he, he had all sorts of rolling stuff going on, but it didn't give it the edge. And and that was one of the things with the label was, was you know, a band who's got a, uh, 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 quite, quite. You know, I mean, if you break those Duran tracks down, they sound like house tracks with 808s going and little sequences and stuff. Mm. And then you put the band on top, and it sounds like Duran Duran. So Nick had this that little Corbin idea, and it really was always quite a hybrid. And the, uh, and and the way, you know, when he's running a sequencer to get right, so you've got a you know, you've really got to chop the guitar a little bit, like reflex and stuff. And then it is that, I mean, Rod used to stay, say, you know, you've got this kind of slashy way, slashing way of playing. And for me, that was actually, it's the rhythm aspect of it as much as. No, I took, a, I took a lot that, off of you, Andy, later on in the 80s, you know, because I think you established a certain type of playing guitar that was in the same way that Andy Summers also established a certain 80s sound. I think you also should get the, 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 the award for that as well. Well, absolutely. Also, because you had some dirt in your sound, whereas everyone else was going clean. I used JCM 800 since I was since I could afford them, <laughs> and never really changed. I used a Marcio pickup, so I, I never ever changed that. You know, from being a kid, and you know when you can learn to. Because when I played in the clubs, you learn a lot of different. But techniques. who were your heroes at the time? Who were you sort of? Who was your guitar playing heroes? Well, it was. I mean, initially. I was a you know a huge Mick Ronson fan, Gary Moore, you know all all of the Lizzie stuff, Robin Trower, Yakosov. Mm-hmm. Uh, my um, immediate neighbour across the road from me was a guy called Dave Black, 
an absolutely phenomenal Les Paul kind of blues rock player. And he could also play quite a bit of jazz. Anyway, Dave, he was a few years older than me. And he was he was one of those guys in the Northeast that was considered to be probably the best guitarist, one of the best guitarists I've ever, ever known. Anyway, one day when I was about 13, I knocked on his door. I'm like, Mr. Black, you know, <laughs> holding up a pound coin or something, you know, could you give me a few lessons and sort of help me get on? And he was like, absolutely, you know, you know, when he, he worked professionally in the clubs and that, he said, anytime after school during the day, I'm not working, I just work at weekends. So this guy showed me all the cool shortcut scales. He showed me all those bloody Stevie Wonder chords, 13s, 11s, major 7s, you know, and how they were used melodically against how we would use kind of a more white European way of, of, of chord structure. Um, but he was a phenomenal lead guitar player. So every time he sat in front of him, he'd do something and I'd be straight back home for four hours trying to figure it out. Anyway, when the spiders from Mars all broke up, he took Mick Ronson's place with Mick Woodmansey and Trevor Bolden. Oh, wow. And oh. that, that was, when that happened, I saw them once turn up at my house. And when that happened, I, I, I was about 13 or 14. And um, I, it, it was just there across the road from me, the fucking spiders from Mars on my street. And that wow. made me think anything's possible. He wasn't in U-Boat, was he? he didn't play... No, he had a band called Goldie. Goldie, Goldie. which they had a few Top of the Pops hits and then he just stayed up north. Oh, I remember had... them. Yeah. So, uh, and he wrote as well. So... He, wow. he he gave me a kind of quick education about PRS when I was a kid and don't let them take half of it from you. And What were you playing in the clubs? What was... Oh, well, you, sorry, you're talking about 1976, 77 to 1980. So all that period, Blondie, lots of Blondie. <laughs> Everything. There was, you know, cool for cats. Squeeze, yeah. And just... Uh, but, uh, I also used to do the um, military bases in Germany and Italy, where you, the six forty-five minute uh, sets per night. Well, wasn't that more of a soul thing, though? No, no. Like, it was oh, three, okay. Three, it was a three hundred song repertoire. So, who were the wow. other guys in the wow. band? They were just local. The guys from Newcastle. Wow. So you... That we got a deal actually when I was sort of sixteen or seventeen for A and M, and we were called the Gigolos, but they changed it to Motorway. But then I fell out with a singer, <laughs> which probably was a good thing because, you know, I ended up saying, you know, I couldn't really do much more in Newcastle and I answered that Melody Maker advert. But I had a little, I'd done quite a lot of demos before I joined Duran, loads of gigs. And that, you know, when you just learn to construct music and you get used to arranging and getting things down. And then eventually when you, it's ingrained in you, that's what helps you write, you know, that when you, you you get to it and get to a chorus, you think, shit, I've hit that chorus at one minute and I didn't even realise it. Perfect. You know, that's, that song thing where you learn so many songs and, and styles. I mean, I was playing in the officer's mess at Ramstein, Maine, that great big nuclear air base, and it was like, me mad at you. <laughs> 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 Are you dead quiet? And... Uh, <laughs> 
but the food was great. Did, uh, you went on before the puppets, I take it. <laughs> uh, but did, uh, well, when did, uh, it was, I tell you, they were experiences because they were all short, those Vietnam guys, and they wanted to get out. Your officer's mess was one thing, but when you played for the GIs, free bird, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, playing the solo in free bird was the standard, and then along come any Van Halen. Right, but until then, <laughs> like was following free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would, you would certainly get the GI. Did because um, you because it was obviously Nick and 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 John's band initially. Yeah. Did you when was it? Was there a mo? Did you always feel slightly that it wasn't your band? Was that is that or did you suddenly then it was all equal? When I first obviously went down there and and kind of looked at how how they got it together and put it together and and you know just like you you know with, with steve and paul and mike were integral they really were part of the whole thing and i think this is the barrows right yeah and and yeah. And, and, and and when they were looking you know when they were looking for a guitarist and singer because when i got down there was no singer they lied they said he was on holiday <laughs> <laughs> but there was no singer um but it was a vibe it was just a thing that that that, that sort of happened but I, I think when there wasn't really a lot of songs there was some good ideas so when simon joined i think the first thing we wrote was sound of thunder he had some lyrics and i always loved doing key changes for choruses and things so i just mm -hmm. started applying that kind of arrangement knowledge to all these ideas nick had sequences going and stuff which i'd never seen and I'm like, let's get, you know, and programming the notes and finding this way to make it work. It was it was really interesting. And then we wrote Planet Earth and that was our first single. And as soon as that, the ideas, were, I think there was an idea called To The Shore on the first album. There's a chorus of girls on film. But once we got into Planet Earth, Nail Girls on film wrote Night Boat, which all kind of start with guitar and stuff. Then essentially it's your work that gives you your pride of place. But I discovered that these got this band called Duran Duran, Roger just joined, and there was just something that told me instinctively after being in loads of bands and trying this and trying that, that this had something about it that was, you couldn't really put it Because you could words. have been an old cynic, and couldn't you? And sort of, you know, a Noel who knew all his chops and Midnight of the Oasis and all of that, you know. I left them behind in Newcastle because, no, you know, it's, it's all right knowing it, but you got to take it somewhere. And I... I, and also, I, I walked into the Rum Runner, <laughs> <laughs> and there was nowhere like that no, in no, Newcastle. I, I did that once, <laughs> and I was just like, "Wow!" And so, you know, you've got your kindred freaks. You meet, you meet your own kind, of, and they, they had, they come from the same sort of musical, you know, the attitude. But Nick was the DJ in the Rum Runner um, on the on the Bowie Roxy nights, and he was fucking great at it. And he used to fill the floor, you know. I, I, I mean, I am the passenger, and yeah. da, mm -hmm. da, 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 you know those that era of Bowie, yeah. not mm -hmm. the early. Yeah, we Bowie, had the that, same down that, in that, London and Ber Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. a heroes era. And Nick had this real that sort of new wave late seventies, and he had a great way of putting it together. Um, and that kind of defined the audience. What what his DJing was. Nick, now, if you start the band, he'd be hugely paid DJ. 
He was really, really good. And I was going to say, has he kept it up? Has he kept it up? Did he? Is, no, is, no, yeah. no. He, uh, he just. <laughs> it wasn't worth. It wasn't worth any money at the time. Now, um, I mean, <laughs> any. You know, I'm sure he could still do it. He doesn't need to. But that was one of the things that when you know the band, the one of the originators of the band was a DJ who had a sense of what making that party happen. Just like what what's happened, you know, with house music. He knew how to set and, do the set list. It, it, yeah, and and so you know, everyone used to go there. That was cool. I met my wife there. It, you know, the Barrows owned the club. Michael sold his house to support us. He 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 did some really really you know incredible things. But that club was like. The first two albums are basically Hungry Like the Wolf wasn't written there, but half of Rio and the first album were written in the club on one of the side rooms that we rehearsed in. And then we just go in the club. And that's when the trouble began. It was all Pete Townsend's fault. What, what happened? After a Bruce Springsteen gig. Well, there was a kitchen. <laughs> and occasionally, I used to be the chef to earn a bit of money before we had a deal. And we went to see Bruce Springsteen at the NEC and um, we got some nice side of the stage, a couple of us and that, and Pete Townsend was, was there. And uh, this, so this is before, this is an end of 1980. Oh, that's when Pete was on his big bender, wasn't it? When he was just, Oh yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, saw yeah, him down yeah. at the club course, for heroes. Uh, like everybody, see him everywhere. Yeah. Made it down to the rum runner, comes into my kitchen and, um, so he starts, you know, doing what he did. Anyway, he decides to straighten up. And then he writes this open letter to the son about our behavior. What? And I'm like, you were fucking racking them out like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Probably can't. You know, but, uh, yeah, such a hypocrite. And then I bumped into him in Sheridan Studios and I had a can of Foster's. I think we we're filming Wild Boy. He said, you still drinking? And I'm like, well, you taught everyone. <laughs> you know it really weird but he he was mad for it uh, and and so you know the rum runner was on one of those canals and peaky blinders all right, right. Well, I was to say because what is it now is it like... well now it's the hyatt hotel oh, yeah. okay. it got knocked down but it had the rum barrels in and it was on the on the canals where they used to oh, yeah. run that's all right. the um, why is it, that's why it's called a rum runner uh, yeah, it also yeah. used to be a boxing gym and it was a, it was always a trendy club, um, and it was always owned by the Barrows. They're three generations deep, um, so we all we had a lot of, you know, we were well looked after in Birmingham. I remember that really well looked after. Did you after you know because obviously what what happened to you you know well documented, fantastic, you know the you know smashing it all over America and becoming such superstars. When 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 you left the band before the Notorious album, did you, did you, was there a sense of like, I've, I, I've got to achieve what, what I did with Duran or, or were you, did you try and belittle Duran in your mind and see that just as a stepping stone to something else? I mean, how did you carry that? So the great myth is that John and I started Power Station because we wanted to stretch out. In actual fact, there was a certain singer went sailing for a year Oh, yeah, he got upside down in his boat, didn't he? Right, for a year. And that's quite a long time. 
Well, especially when you're young, you remember how time is. Yeah, I mean, years forever then. And, and you know, and and it was kind. Of, I'm I'm from a you know all of my family. I'm the first generation that's not a navy man or an inshore fisherman or a lifeboat man. All my family mm. are are seamen, and it goes back generations. Grandfather, great 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 grandfather. They're all lifeboat men. So, you know, I was brought up not to mess about on the sea and you need a lot of skill to when my grandfather would never let me get in his cobalt he died when i was about seven but when i was a lad he wouldn't let me get in his inshore fit small cobalt because it's quite dangerous so then they bought a boat <laughs> st- had one race and the keel fell off john and i i think we were in richmond virginia it was some it was somewhere down that way and i just i was literally getting ready for sound check sitting on the end of the bed, having a bowl of soup, watching the telly, and it came on the news, the upside-down boat. And it was quite, you know, I think it was it was a lot more serious, you know, in terms of how what danger he was in. And then we had to go and get on stage. And, I'm, you know, I mean, in those days, I don't even think we had a brick phone in those days. It was, you know, literally communicating was difficult. Anyway, he got they got him out, and... Um, but that, and then, and then they went off and did the round the world sailing thing. And so, you know, that period that had been created and that, uh, yeah, I mean, Trevor Horn said it to me once. He said, it's great until you get the third album. And then guys, guys like you, like you go, go off shopping, buy houses, boats, and making a record is like a nightmare. Uh, and, and it, and it, it did get to the point where, you know, it, it, the effect it was having on us, not just the, you know, the consumption. But um, we we did we did go hard at it in America, very hard at it, um, and it, it took its toll. And I remember after the power station tour, it was actually John and I were like, I was trying to get it on the level, you know. I just had a son, and, and power station had done so well, it kind of cleared up in my mind that you know Duran wasn't a fluke, because the pop business, as you know, can be manipulated quite heavily. In, in, in certain areas and it wasn't it wasn't just that one thing and and you were bound to that and and, and i suppose that's what you said earlier where you know i never i guess i never fully felt like you know I, i'm a geordie i like football and beer and i wear jeans nick can't stand any of that so we were perfect for you know yeah to find those the idiosyncratic moments which is probably uh, why you were uh, also so successful because you know you there was an appeal to different kinds of personalities within the band well yeah we all you know simon was had a, a lot of drama training and he did you know he did ad tv adverts when he was a kid for like purse and stuff or weedabix and um i was digging fags and booze and <laughs> drink you know. beer smoke tubs <laughs> yeah, and 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 doing a doing a milk round and sneaking in Newcastle City Hall, uh, you know, and me and my me and my mates became experts at how to get in anywhere at the age of thirteen with huge platforms. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, so it, it, you know, I had that kind of. So what you're saying, Andy, was there's a, there was a sense that when you'd been successful in one band and now you'd been successful in another band, you had something amazing to offer. Well, I did feel that I'd, both bands, you know, I'd I'd given them the impetus, the momentum to start to work, and and when I found 
that it, it I, I getting to work with Tony and Bernard was actually an ambition to try to get up there. And it wasn't playing with them at first was like because <laughs> you know when you're just playing Rogers so precise and tight sequences and he's absolutely brilliant at it and so you're just locked in but then when you play with those guys without a click Mm-mm-mm. and then i'm watching bernard how he conducted tony and he played yeah. tony hit a symbol and that and then just getting it getting into it with them and then we cut get it on the the cover of it and and i and i you know, I came up with that, the drum beat with Tony, and he come up, he, he was like piece suit backwards. And he, and I'm going, what's that? And he's like, I don't know. I just, you know, and I'm like, play again. And then Nard picked up that bass line. And um, I'm here, I'm here and get it on like, fuck. And the power in it. So then you can play as hard and as tough and, you know, you can really crank the middle up and, and, but it, the rhythmic aspect of it, that was where the learning curve really was kind of mm-hmm. steep and brilliant. Because when you when you learn to play in that field, and they, you know, they're all of such a level. You know, how Tony pushes his kick, snares back, and he has that thing of pushing his kick in. And it's a when you look at it, it's you don't hear it. I mean, I think he does it on like a virgin really well. And that, and you just get used to his lit, and then when ever look stick it like a brap. That was that that fill he always yeah. like, stick it like a brap. That's brap, brap. Yeah, stick it like a brap. But when you look at him playing, you'd be like, oh, and he'd be pulling faces, and he was always happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he'd come up stage with man like shit about everybody. <laughs> but it, when he was playing drums, he was uh, he was phenomenal. So. I, that that was my. I, I suppose you know when you try and have those those markers, those achievements, not the hits, the records, and the numbers, but the progress you make is as a as a musician, it, it, and and the way that they accepted us, and were just as interested in our way, as we were as, uh, as fascinated by theirs. But that's the thing. You come out of all this, and then you go on, and then you're producing. So it's like you're still. Moving up. Well, I got a call from Rod's management. I got a call from Rod's management. It's like, uh, and I'm like, I think I was making a my first solo album, but that was kind of, well, you know, you can't really say no when they throw that much at you. Um, really, the, uh, the first solo album I made was not planned. It was offered. I didn't necessarily have in mind to, to have a solo career. And then when Rod's management rang me up and said, you know, you want to come down, sort of look at, talk, we're working with Rod. I knew Rod and, and Randy. I didn't know Arnold too well. Anyway, I got chatting with Rod and just what, what he wanted to do. And he's like, what are those two like? I said, who? He said, power station blokes. I said, what, Bernard and Tony? I said, you'll shit your pants, mate, when you, when you hear them play. He's like, can you get them down? And I'm like... You're going to have to pay them. <laughs> they ain't cheap. Tony came down initially, and then I asked Bernard if he'd come in and co-produce with me because I was only 26 and Rod was 40. And Bernard, such an expert at doing vocals. You know, he had such experience. You know, Luther Vandross used to be a backing singer, yeah. Diana Ross. I mean, Robert, 
Um, he had a he had a great way of keeping singing it, vocals contained and getting it done. What was the album called that you were working the, on? The first Rod Stewart album was called Out of Order. And um, we had four big hits on it in America. So changed the band, really, and brought in Tony Bernard. Michael Lander, the session guitarist, played guitar. And then um, this dude called Smithy, who was from, yeah, this pink Cadillac, and he played organ like um, one of Rod's guys. And uh, David Lindy came in and did a bit, which was fascinating. Wow. And then the next time, um, I got Dave Palmer to come in. Ah, yeah. And still David's there. still and there. And he's been there ever since, yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. A- ABC's drummer. He's been there ever since. And, um, and I knew Dave was perfect for Rod because, you know, David can play anything, but he can also swing so beautifully. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... I've been fully compensated from Mr. Stewart. I've even seen the wallet. It's um, mm. fucking huge. <laughs> How was it? How, did you go on tour with him? You... No, I, I, I nearly did. But then I just made this conscious decision not to be a sideman because, I, I, you know, like me and Rod would argue, I didn't, you know, in, in 1985, he, he, had, he had no standing over us. You know what I mean? He couldn't, he was asking me, to make records with him. Well, yeah, you're producing him. And, and I'm, go, yeah, I, you yeah. know, sometimes like, I'm like, fucking, I'm, going, I'm going to walk out of the room for five minutes kind of thing. And, uh, it, it, you know, someone when they've made that many great records, they're never wrong. But I, I didn't, I didn't want to then be in a position where when you're in the studio producing, writing, playing guitar, doing takes, you know, keeping it moving and you've got all these great guys working with you and you just charge, you get on the road, it's not that disappears, mm. it's not your show. Yeah. And I, you know, I I started putting that band Thunder together with um with Luke Morley and Danny Bowes and got them signed to EMI. So I was kind of doing what moving into production, I had two kids by then and I'd done about ten years of it. I was nearly thirty and I was fucking knackered. But did you, you know, when, when you got back with Duran, and I remember that being really inspiring. I came to those those shows in the early 2000s, the one at Wembley, when you all walked out on stage at the beginning and stood in a line. Which yeah, was, it was yeah. It's quite a clever vibe, right? Because it's just the confrontational thing, but also all of you as individuals being as important as each other. I thought that was great. But it, I remember sitting watching that show thinking, fuck, I've got to get my band back together. And, and it, but it took another five years before I convinced everybody. But it was such an inspiration. But oh, wow. it, was it, was it, was it a... Was it, did it become tricky soon for you to be on the road with them? Well, I can't do band rules anymore. I can't do them. And I discovered that second time around, that band rules can't trump life rules, family, kids. You know, there's only so much you can give up. And so it's like, click of the finger, you've got to be here. You're like in your mid-40s. And it's like, hold on. I, you know, that it's it's just impossible for me to live within band rules. Mm-hmm. Now, part time, I'm great at. <laughs> so I was sort of part time and, and doing stuff with Duran and a lot of stuff that we've been working on. But, you know, and I just had to come to terms with that, that I, I did start very young, you know, on the road full time from the age of 16. And um, by the time I got 40, that 
you know, putting the band first, because that's everything. Drop, you know, it's drop everything. Got to be there. It's every night. You know, the medicals for insurance. Compromise. And the, uh, the shin splits and all the shit. And you just got to have a word with yourself. But I also didn't really want to write songs with Justin Timberlake. And that's no offense to him whatsoever. But I always regarded the five of us as having enough talent, enough depth, mm -hmm. if we dug deep enough to do it. And I, w I still wanted to go that way. And, and the other guys wanted to go the other way, really. Um, and after yeah. doing so much work with so many great people, you know, and particularly working with Robert several times and hanging out with him, just, you know, the vibe we had, we were good friends. And, and, you know how you know how limited that was, guy. <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many people he hung out with or work? You know, he was very, very yeah. close. And, and you know, you've got all these other places where you can kind of you know lay your hat or your axe or whatever. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd 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 still take making a brilliant album over making a shit one and making money. Well, this is a good yeah. album. This is a really good, really good album. I mean, yeah. just the, the the textures, the layers on there of, you know, this, I can hear that the arrangements, you know, talk about, you know, now you've just, you, you've told us about your, you know, all that stuff you did as a kid and all those, you know, earning your dues, you know, those 10,000 hours that you did. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's all here in this record. Yeah. You feel. Yeah. Your whole toolkit is out. I'm, I'm absolutely blown away, you know, because I know you two and, you're both fucking good at what you do. Um, that, um, that's really nice for you to say. I mean, uh, really, really, uh, you know, we've uh, we come a long way from the 80s. But that guy, I remember when, because I, I wasn't there when, when you cut Go to Zero. I didn't even know there was a previous demo until recently. But John, and I, I think um, actually tr um, Tracy was, um, Tracy was quite, pregnant and i think uh andrew our first was was due and i i wasn't in new york he came over to see me with a cassette of that track with every with the, with the vocal on and the groove and stuff yeah 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 we played everything yeah yeah but there was no guitar on and i'm like and as soon as that that i just had to kind of actually i think i'm pretty sure when I went in to do the guitar on that, Jeff Beck was doing day sessions with Jason and we were doing nights. I just plugged into Jeff Beck's rig. Yeah. Oh, do you know? Do you know there's a story about that? Well, no, because there was actually a lyric change to get your name in it because on the original, because it was all written, it was written as a joke, right? The story of the song is, if we've got time, is yeah. Robert had one of those new, what was then new Sony two track recorders, the Sony F1. And it had all these new commands on it, which we'd never seen before, like swing search and go to zero. And my joke was, one, you know, it was late at night in the Bahamas, you know that scene. I guess, yes. And, and, uh, and I said, well, why don't we write a song called go to zero and put it out under the name swing search, the idea of this band who can't find their swing. And so we were just joking around with this stuff. And then uh, the only thing we could think to rhyme at the end of this one, line was adrian Ballou, 
And he said, oh, I did some demos with Adrian Ballou. I've got a solo of his number. So he just went, Adrian Ballou, go to zero. And he just put in this Adrian Ballou solo what? from an old demo of his. And then we got to the studio. I said, well, obviously you can't have Adrian Ballou. It's got to be Andy. And so he just rewrote it as Andy Taylor, go to zero. And there you are. Oh, <laughs> yes. Good story. Great. I'd love to think that you're going to be able to get back on stage. Definitely. On stage. I am... Um top of the agenda for this treatment is that it will allow me to get back on stage get stage fit get you know get my muscle strength back um so probably you know uh, within a couple of months after a few cycles of treatment i'll by the end of august i'll, I'll be in pretty good shape man stay in touch would you that's brilliant andy I will really, do really, that's really good great to, to hear <laughs> really good to see you and please send my very best to tracy I think she's just over there. Uh, I know that you uh, bumped into her on a flight once. On a flight, yeah. yeah. yeah and in yeah. fact, she'd been to my show the night before. Oh, right. She's been to my comedy show. Oh, your comedy show? Yeah, but I did course, a, a yeah. stand-up thing for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you still do that? Nah. Now he's too nah. busy playing with, 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 with us doing Nick Mason's show. Yes. No, I've been more... I've, God, I've been following. It's amazing. So you're out again, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. just a little one, just a little 10 day Right, yeah, but we're playing Pompeii, which we're very much looking forward to. Oh, yeah. you know, to take Echoes back to Pompeii is going to be. Oh wow! You know, yeah. really, cool. that's a buzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking yeah. forward to that. Well, he said, and you know, the fact of the matter is, everyone's doing fucking great and 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 doing <laughs> still doing what they want, and uh, and we all come from the same hazardous decadence. <laughs> Do you know what? It's been a real pleasure talking to you today, because I, 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 I yeah. Andy, I. I've been really worried. I was really worried as everyone else was about you and just bumping into you a uh, week before last or whenever it was and, and seeing that you're, you know, hearing good news and what hearing you today, you know, completely amazing stories we've had from you today. I mean, I really feel this is a very special episode of our show and, you know. I'm, I, I'm just so fucking lucky I'm here. That was an extraordinarily moving. That was a very powerful one episode yeah I would say. absolutely yeah i mean it's, it's his honesty that is is so disarming you know yes yeah. it's because a lot of people try and keep that stuff hidden you know because they don't want to mess up their their work their whoever you know the, their public persona and um to reveal well, there's your, also a thing of you know you very much you know want your privacy at that time well there is also there yeah. also is that as well and, that, and people can't you can't you know not everyone is the same but i think what what i'm trying to say is that I think a lot of people who might be listening who are in similar situations, you know, would gain a lot of strength out of that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that there's very often, you know, a corner to turn. And you're in it, this story, weren't you? You were in it quite a lot, this, this particular oh, episode. Oh, you didn't like it, did you? It was a lot about you. I think is you know is part of what we do you know it's like we were there on the ground well, I've, I've, did, you know Andy's been part of I mean you know Robert Palmer's very very and power station very important part of my life it, it was it, actually really nice to be taken back there and you know what talking about Robert you know uh, because he was we owe him some stuff as well he didn't just suddenly appear you know and then kind of ca catch on to the 80s you know, I remember being, you know, obviously he was in Vinegar Joe and there was, well, he was in Vinegar Joe, that's right. Yeah, Vinegar, Vinegar Joe. Joe, yeah. Elkie yeah. Brooks. But sneak, well, sneaking Elkie Sally was a... Sneaking was Sally through you know. the alley. I mean, the first guy, this was an, you know, English singer come out of a band and his first solo record 
One side, the backing band is the meters. The other side, the backing band is little feet. I mean, come on. Such a great record and really yeah. inspired us. I know my brother and I had that on all the time and I often go back to it now and especially that track, Sneaking Sally Through the Alley. The groove. Oh my God. Ah. Oh. That baseline yeah. as well. But when I worked, because the, the time when I met Robert, he just put out Pride and I was completely obsessed with that album. I still think it's absolutely brilliant because it was post after, you know, because he got hip to Gary Newman and worked with yeah. him. Yeah. And he made this album, which was all totally electro, all electronic sounds, electronic drums, electronic everything. But every note was played. It was mm. brilliant. Mm. Well, yeah. it, well, what, everything that sounded like a sequencer was actually It all played. sounded like sequencers, machines. None of it was. Every single note played. Brilliant. Amazing. All right, you can get more stuff from us by uh, signing up on uh, rockontours.com um, and get some extras, which get put out quite a bit. Almost, they get put out, but not as much as Gary was, it seems. <laughs> <I'm> so, <laughs> I was. I tried to contribute. <laughs> you had so much to contribute. I Come know. on, what are you talking I about? Know. You I'm were the kidding, other I'm kidding. Note kidding you were there you were the other bloke i know i still yeah i was i was anyway um thanks for listening and thank you to our producer ian today from gimme sugar yes ian today because well ben, ben's away and um it's good night from me and it's good night from them rock on tours is produced by gimme sugar productions for warner music group uk Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.